This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. This podcast includes discussion of mental health and suicide and we advise readers to be aware of difficult content that may cause distress. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, Stories Behind the Story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, Stories Behind the Story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Indira and I do. Welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Great to be with you. I am so excited. I feel as though I know you. I mean, you know, that happens, I guess, when you're a personality such as yourself. And I was sure this morning coming to work that maybe we'd cross paths, but we hadn't. Maybe maybe we have. Maybe we've been at an event together and we said (laughs) hi or something. Maybe. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Indira is here to talk about her book. It's called The Space Between the Stars, deeply personal book. But before we start, I'm going to introduce her for, you know, there might be one or two people out there that don't know you. Um, Indira is an author and broadcaster with an award-winning journalistic career spanning 30 years. Wow. She has hosted and reported for some of Australia's most recognisable news programs, including ABC TV's Late Edition and SBS's TV's World News. You're an anchor on World News for quite some years, weren't you? Ah, uh, three. Three, yeah, I remember that. And she's currently the host of ABC Radio's Weekend Nightlife. As a passionate advocate for the environmental and food sustainability, she has written the books The Edible Balcony, which I have a copy at home, and The Edible City. Her latest book, as I said, the book we're talking about today, The Space Between the Stars, is a deeply personal exploration of the power of nature to heal. I really found it tough reading this book because my mum died recently. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, but I, I just, before we start, I just want to thank you for sharing this story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do mm. writing this book, particularly because I uh, crazily decided to do it within a few weeks of my sister dying. So I was in the darkest, darkest pits of despair which is probably why I did turn to writing. Uh, There is a lot of research about the benefits of journaling when you're in grief, writing down your thoughts to give you a sense of perspective and and make sense of all the muddled emotions. No one would ever recommend writing a book in your grief, but I thought that it was going to sort out what was swirling around in my head, help me with my healing process. And I hoped maybe help one other person who, who may read it and might help them with, with their grief. That that was the plan. But I really had no idea how difficult the whole process of writing, confronting my grief, sitting with it, trying to find the vocabulary for grief, which is really difficult, finding a word for an emotion because it is a conversation. It is a topic we don't talk about. So I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad if um, you got something out of reading the book because uh, that that was, you know, the, the biggest hope really um, mm. that I had for that readers would connect with that. So 
Your sister committed suicide um, and uh, I don't know, we can talk about if you knew, I mean, if you saw that coming is not the right terminology. And you yeah, can talk to me this about is that. an interesting thing, Cheryl, yeah. uh, why when I started doing a lot of yeah. research into this area, a very small percentage of yes. people who take their life give any indication yeah. that, that mm. it's going to happen. So in a Had way, she suffered depression. She, we knew that she was struggling with her mental health. She had mm. been for a few years, and she decided that she was going to fix it her way, which mm-hmm. didn't involve medication or getting any professional support, which mm. the family didn't think was the best route. So we had been um, supporting her and working through how uh, she was going to manage it. And we did all believe that she would find a way to manage it because she was incredibly smart, incredibly accomplished, uh, worked at a very high level in government and media where she came across mental health issues and, and, you know, all the legislation and policy around it. So we just thought she would get herself through it. And, of course, the pandemic Uh, The timing of that just couldn't have been worse because she lived with her husband and daughter in Melbourne. And so when Melbourne went into lockdown, Mm. even people who didn't have mental health or anxiety problems were suddenly, everyone was anxious. Everyone's mental health was being stretched. And so we knew it was going to be an incredibly difficult time for her, particularly because one of the ways she managed her mental health and her well-being, which is a really good thing for everyone to do, was exercise and swim. So she swam every day. But unfortunately, during lockdown, uh, it was ordered for all the public pools to be closed. Mm-hmm. So we just knew it was just not going to go well. I have been well and healthy all my life, right? I live by myself um, in the inner west in Sydney. I'm a swimmer, like your sister. Oh, right. I swim almost every day. And lockdown was hard for me. For the first time in my life, I think I was really struggling with demons, like being alone. Living alone is not being alone no. unless you're in lockdown. And it was very, very challenging. And then after lockdown, my mother got sick. My mother died. Then I got shingles. Then I got gastro. And it took me to the darkest places. And for the first time in my entire life, I then thought, this is what it feels like. This is mental health. Yeah. Mm. It's not easy. No, no. And because I host a, a national radio show across all the borders, um, a million listeners, most of them were like you and I, you know, mm-hmm. suddenly very dramatically isolated from mm-hmm. our network of family and friends uh, and particularly the people in Melbourne who went through mm-hmm. the worst incarceration in the world. Awful. Yeah. Uh, I got an insight into mm-hmm. that loneliness, that anxiety, and, and listeners were sharing those stories with me. So that had been happening for about two months before my sister died. So I had a sense obviously about the national loss we were going through, the international global pandemic, and then I had this very personal experience as well. So I think part of the reason I wrote the book is I could see that so many people were struggling with their grief and there wasn't a lot of material to draw upon, good material that was working for me. Mm -hmm. Either it was too clinical, uh, told from the point of view of a psychologist or a psychiatrist, or it was told in in a way that you know was quite um, 
explaining what grief was like and what a loss was like, but not giving me or me feeling that I had a sense that I could find hope and joy out of the end of the process. So I thought, you know, and I wasn't sure, but I thought maybe I could try to write a story that acknowledged loss and anxiety that I was experiencing from my audience and also personally, but find a way out of it. And I only had five kilometres around me, like, and you know, and I'm lucky I've got a, a park, the Botanic Gardens, a little bit of harbour around me. So I was fortunate compared to most people, but that was the only area that I had to explore to help me with my grief. I couldn't be with my family. I couldn't be with my family over the borders because of the restrictions. So that was it. That was the sum of how the tools I had to grieve and heal. And that was how I discovered rediscovered urban nature, found this amazing tree, and and that became my way to heal. Mm. So, you know, I don't have enough knowledge to write a book about grief, but I do, my personal experience was that it's so personal. You know, I come from a family of six kids, Mm. yet every one of us is having, we're in it, is having a different grief experience and it transpires in so many different ways doesn't it Mm. Mm. you're so right Cheryl uh I'd say in the book that grief is very isolating because everyone experiences it differently every member of the family it doesn't matter that you've all lost the same person in the same circumstance I describe it like uh, being in a hold-up in a 7-Eleven and depending Mm -hmm. on what aisle you were and how close you were and how long you'd been in the shop you see it so differently. And that can also be a challenge because where you are and you want to share it with another member of the family, it's not where Mm. they're at or they're maybe at an anger stage and you're not Mm. there. Mm. And so that also can be very difficult because the the usual people you can draw upon in these extreme griefs, sometimes they're not accessible to you in the same way. No. No. And it's and it's a lonely thing anyway, but suddenly you're going, oh, I can always talk to you about these things. And suddenly you don't understand what I'm feeling. I can't understand how you're feeling. Mm. And that was how this tree that I stumbled across, the Morton Bay fig tree, really helped me because I found myself just sitting under it one day and I felt so embraced and so supported by it. But what I loved about it is that it gave me a sense of, of courage and strength and a being that I could be with, like I knew it was alive, but I didn't have to find the words. Mm. I didn't have to explain my feeling or my grief. It didn't have to sit there and go, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to upset her. And that was so comforting to realise mm. we could be together and just be present in each other's company and didn't have to say anything. Mm. And sometimes that can be the only thing you need when you're in grief. So talk to and and if you're comfortable with this, talk to me that where were you when you found out? What was your initial reaction? How did you deal? Because there are stages of grief and that initial couple of days, I mean, how did you deal with that? Well, it's it was just shock, really. Mm. Shock for mm. probably a month, I'd say. Um, mm. After, you know, we, we got the initial call, then we had to try to get down to Melbourne because I live in Potts Point in Sydney. Mm. And, of course, the planes were grounded. Mm. So we had to get in a hire car and drive down to Melbourne and mm. all the sh- country towns were all shut. Mm. So the borders the ho- were shut too. Yeah, they? the borders, the restaurants, the hotels. Mm. Uh, when we arrived in Melbourne, 
there was just skeleton staff at the hotel, so mm. we didn't see anyone. We couldn't eat. We had to eat takeaway sandwiches in our room. It was a horrible way to mm. be dealing with such an extreme grief. And funerals were restricted in numbers, so not all our family members could be there, which was just a horrible thing see, to See, I find that very, very hard. Do you know, my? I've got a girlfriend who lost her mother six months before me, and it was a stage of lockdown, and they could only invite 10 people. and her mother probably would have had a state funeral. You know, she she was, you know, a very active member in the Labor Party. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And at my mother's funeral, there were over 300 people. Mm. And to deal with the grief of only having a few people and those people that couldn't come or having to deal with the grief of a Zoom funeral. Horrible. Mm. Uh, it just uh, multiplied your grief tenfold for the family members who couldn't physically be there. And then, of course, after the funeral, we couldn't gather. So there were restrictions on only 10 people in each person's home. So we just had to leave straight away, which was, again, another grief in itself. Uh, so, yeah, it just couldn't have been worse timing. And knowing that there were hundreds of families that went through that uh, during the lockdowns, I really feel for them because that, in itself becomes its own grief, not being able to properly heal after the loss and, and the death as well. And then not being able to be in ongoing contact because the, the lockdowns carried on mm. on and off for another two years. So mm. we physically we couldn't be together until two years later. Do you, you all rem, well, you'll remember this pre-lockdown? You know, people used to say that, you know, when somebody dies, you have all these people around you, people coming to your home and they're giving you food. You have the funeral, you have family, and then everybody mm. disappears. And be careful because that is the time that is really difficult because everybody's gone now and then everybody's getting on with their normal life. Well, that didn't happen in lockdown. You actually just fell into that time straight away, didn't you? Mm. Mm. And what I'm noticing is because I made myself write the book, I made myself go through the process of grieving basically mm. on my own mm. uh, and obviously with the input of the natural world around me as well, whereas a lot of other friends and family didn't uh, have that opportunity, the, the gift of art to help you through the grief. So it's going to be, I think, a longer process of grief in a way. Uh, not that it's that's quick. I wouldn't say that I'm over my grief and healed or anything like that, but I think I'm further along it than I would have been if I hadn't written the book. And you know, I that agree. Was, that was totally. my way. Yeah. But uh, so in a way it's a strange word to use, but I was lucky uh, that I had this outlet and I was very fortunate that I had the beautiful botanic gardens around me and and uh, having those those joyous interactions with the natural world around me was also just another beautiful balm for me mm. to help with mm. the healing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Talk to me a little bit about writing, because you'd written before. You'd written your two gardening urban gardening books was the process I mean it's it's a little bit different than than sitting down to approach writing a journal because you had all that grief with you but was it something that you thought okay I'm going to approach this I'm going to because you know writing long form is not easy as you know um and I'm going to dedicate my time four or five hours a day or I'm going to have a word count or how did you kind of approach it or was it because you were feeling so grief-stricken that it was just coming mm. out every day. Do you remember the process? Absolutely. It was, yeah, it was the most painful thing I've ever mm. gone through. Mm. Uh, I can't even imagine it. it. I'd just sit in front of my laptop and I was working full-time during this time as well. And so very, you didn't take any time off for grief? No. I took a few months off at, at one stage, but most of the book I was writing and editing while I was working full-time. Mm. And full time overnights with a national audience in grief. So it was just mm. an extreme time. But I look back on it now, and I that was all as painful as it was. It was all very helpful to fuel and and um, channel feelings and emotions and, and experiences into that book because people were sharing those stories with me. So that that all informed me. But yes, I would sit. You know, I was only sleeping three or four hours a night at the time. Mm. I, you know, sort of finish my shift at two, be in bed by three, wake up at seven and then write the book for four or five hours and then write my work for four or five hours and then go into a radio shift and go overnight and mm. do it. I was sort of in that loop, which was interesting because not that there was any other, there wasn't anything else we could end, we could do. We were all in lockdown. Mm. So it was strange. It wasn't as if I was missing out on catching up with people or going mm. to barbecues or going to theatre because no one was doing that. So it was an odd time. So it was it was sort of imprisoning myself within the prison that we were all in. And, and also would, the prison that you were in, the prison of grief. Yeah. So it was yeah. a it was a prison within a prison within a prison. And what the book became was like a door into this open field that I could step into. And feel the freedom and the safeness of exploring these feelings and then I could step out, close the door and, and go into, you know, my normal day. So it was a safe place to be but it was a very painful place and, and I could sit there sometimes for days with not a word appearing, mm-hmm. uh, just absolute emotional dark block and then there would just be days where it would just come and, and things would come out and I think that didn't come from me. I didn't mm, I didn't even know was I was thinking person. that or feeling yeah. it. And I couldn't, I didn't feel an ownership to some of the things. Mm. And then as it carried carried on, I realized, no, this is just my th- my truth coming through. And it was always in me, but I hadn't allowed myself to be quiet and to be still. And the time I spent with the tree and in nature was giving me that quiet time and allowing me to really listen to what was inside my heart. So yes, it it just became almost directly from the heart onto the page. It, it almost didn't even go through any 
any other lens or, or filter. Mm. How long did it take to write about? It's so hard because I didn't have a sense of time. You know, I can I can tell you the calendar months and calendar years, but how much time was I actually writing? I really don't know because mm. it would be nothing for weeks and then fits of just mm. crazy writing that it would all unfold, you know, uh, in a 12-hour period, just straight writing. And, and, and I did you do- feel when you finished it that it was, that because, that, you know, something like this never finishes, right? So did you feel that when you finished writing that that's all you had to say for the moment? Yeah, I absolutely felt I'd finished writing. Yeah, there wasn't, I didn't feel I I wish I had more time to say something else. No, when I got to the end, it really was the end. And Mm. I was fearful that my editor would say, now we need a couple more chapters along this because I really didn't think I could do it. I Mm. really thought I'd squeezed every ounce of everything that I had to give into that book. And I'd reached the place where I needed to be and I just hoped that that was going to be okay mm. as, as, you know, for the editor and the reader. What was the response, the family response? Because I think these things are so deeply personal because as we've talked about, grief is deeply personal. So what you're feeling is very unlikely that anybody else in your family is feeling it at the same time or even feeling it at all. So was that something you were quite nervous about, that they Abs- are going to read it? Absolutely. Uh mm. No one, including my husband, my grief counsellor, thought it was a good thing for me to write a book. There are very few examples of people writing this sort of book in the middle of their grief, in a pandemic, in lockdown. Working full time, yeah. Yeah, it was just so extreme on so many levels. Yes, it could have just been a terrible, terrible experience in so many ways. I was very fortunate that my family, even though they didn't understand why I was writing a book or needed to, they were still very open to it. They just let me do it. So I was very lucky because not all families would be like that. And, of course, uh, as soon as I, you know, got it into a manuscript that I was happy with, I sent it off to my sister and to my brother-in-law. They were the two main people that I really wanted to read it first. And both of them just responded amazingly well and and said how much it helped them with their grief. And they were able really for the first time to share their grief Mm -hmm. with me because they didn't realise I was feeling similar griefs, in fact. I mean, we'd talked about all the different griefs, but I don't think we'd we'd articulated the similar griefs. And so that was really beautiful. And they both liked the stories of... um, my sister Monica, uh, the, the childhood stories I share in the book, because again, in grief, you tend to focus on the loss and the missing. And it can take a while to remember all the great times that you had together. And, the and stories. Yeah. And the they love stories. that. And that yeah. really, really helped them. It helped my niece as well, considerably, because mm-hmm. she was very young when her mother died. So that was good. And it's taken my parents a bit longer, but they're coming around to it because. Uh, there's no, I don't think it's a terrible grief to lose anyone, particularly um, when someone takes their life uh, to any member of the family, but there's something about a parent losing a child in that way that I really think is particularly almost impossible to come to terms with. So, Oh, and I think you never as a parent get over that ever. No, I think any sort of parental ch- mm. child loss, but that I, I think so mm. I'm not expecting them to it's going to be a much, much slower process, obviously. And when you're older as well, when you're in your 80s, it's just so much harder when you to go through losses. Well, it's not the natural order to start with. No. 
But everyone, the extended family have all been amazing. A lot of my cousins and aunts came along to my book launch and a lot of them have read it and and just been really touched. And it's been a way to share stories about my sister, which has been beautiful. So, look, I've just been extraordinarily lucky that they have um, supported the idea of it, even though they couldn't imagine how anyone could do it. And now that it's public, that was always going to be the other area of concern. Uh, but as soon as people have heard, they've just been incredibly supportive. And I think that that was not what they expected would would happen. People are amazingly generous. And most people have gone through some sort of loss, particularly well, in the last couple it. of years. This so they can it. understand and they mm. can relate. And it gives them a tool. It's such a good tool to read somebody else's story. I'm going to tell you this story, which is kind of a little bit funny, but very sad. Years ago now, what, pre-COVID, um, I lost my little dog, my little dog died and he was 14 years old and I was yeah. terribly grief-stricken about it but I didn't tell many people because it's a pet it's a dog right so yeah. I just kind of thought and also it's a dog that you know it wasn't like he was run over he had a really nice life he was pampered he lived in a beautiful apartment he was walked twice a day he had a good life so I did feel a little bit of guilt about talking about him dying because I thought he was such a privileged little puppy <laughs> But I missed him and I was really, really sad. And I was at this writer's conference in Tasmania and it was on grief and I don't know how I landed there. It was an incredible panel. And this woman in the audience stood up and she started talking about the death of her grown-up son and he had been sick for years and her and her husband had to decide to turn the life support machine off. And it must have been very recent because she was really raw and really sad. But I then, I was sitting, coincidentally sitting behind her, and that story just triggered me and I couldn't Mm. stop crying. Mm. So when the session finished, she turned around to me and she said, I can I understand that you've suffered a loss too. She could tell just (laughs) Yeah. But I didn't have the heart to tell. I never told her that it was a dog Mm. because I just couldn't, because I felt that that would take away from her grief as well. Mm. But do you know, holding her and hugging her for the time that I did was just so comforting. And I think your book is that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the same experience, but it can be that hug. Now a woman contacted me and she just lost her horse recently and had similar uh, feelings to, to you that, thought, oh, I shouldn't feel this sense of loss because it wasn't a human being. That's right. But And, and I just said to her, not, not at all. That's the thing about any sort of grief. You don't need to justify it to anyone. You know, you can have you could have just lost your dream to travel the world during the pandemic, mm. and that's not nearly the same as losing a grandparent in a nursing home that you couldn't say goodbye to. But a grief is a grief, and you just need to acknowledge it. And I think that that's what a lot of readers have said about my book that you may not have experienced the same loss in the same way, but a grief is a grief. And, and I say in the book, you know, you can't grieve unless you have loved and, and loving is a good thing. So the size of your grief really is dependent on that love. So if you have loved something, you will grieve and that's all right. Yep. Hey, if that woman listens to this podcast, she'll now know because I didn't say it at the time that it was dog. But listen, um, tell me, so now you know that you can write and that you're a beautiful writer. Oh, thank has, you. Has that switched something? Is that kind of thought, hmm, maybe I'm onto something? Uh, 
you're not ready or you're ready? Or? Oh, look, I mean, you know, it's just been an immensely busy, busy yeah. couple of, I mean, you know. I'm um, not your publisher. I'm not putting any pressure. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just like, wondering, does it kind of stir something inside that makes you want to tell other stories? Well, you know, this is the thing. I, I tell stories for my living all yeah. the time and whether it's radio or television or writing books or cooking a meal or building a garden, for me, it's communicating stories. And I, mm. I'm just attracted to the story. The format and the forum for doing that, that's a, a lovely challenge, but I don't have to only do it one way. So it's very gratifying to feel, yes, I can I can write and I can write a book. And sometimes that is the best way to tell a story. You know, we've done a documentary on on my book and, and grief for Compass that goes to wear on the ABC in August. So that's going to be a televisual way of telling that story. We've talked about grief a lot on radio. For me, it's not one particular way. I love writing. I love talking to people on radio, podcast. I, I love <laughs> performing on television as well. So it's about just matching the right story to the right forum, you know, and, mm. and it'll become obvious to you the, the way that story needs to be told. But mm. I do love writing and I think that there, I mean, radio is so intimate, but there is an intimacy about a book that, you oh, know, someone yes. is holding it in their hand, they're lying in their bed under their doona. Uh, even radio can't get inside there. Mm. <laughs> it really does speak to you, I think, reading the written word. It does speak mm. to you in a different very way. very powerful. And, and you're right. I love radio a lot. And I love podcasts. I love the intimacy of, of podcasts, but there is something about the written word. Well, I think you should think about writing something, maybe some fiction or something. But anyway, yeah, thank what you. do I know? What do I know? No, you know a lot. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to. I've got lots of stories. There's always stories in my head yeah, and, and maybe one of them will, will turn into a fiction book. Yeah. Indira, I mean, it's just been such a pleasure and privilege. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, it's been great chatting to you, Cheryl, and, and uh, thanks for all the listeners for listening. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.